Welcome to this new edition of the Visions and Tones podcast. In this episode, I speak to an incredible soul, Dr. Chidima Aham Chibutu. Dr. Chidima is originally from Abia State, which is situated in the southeast of Nigeria. And she completed her PhD around 2019 in population health. Uh, she also has a background in public health because she worked as a nurse for a number of years before embarking in her on her PhD. So for today's discussion, we're actually talking about a paper which she co-authored with two of her supervisors, uh, Gillian Abel and Lee Thompson. And the title of the paper is Men Don't Have Patience, Sexuality, Pleasure and Danger in Displacement Settings in North Central Nigeria. However, in this discussion, we actually cast our nets far beyond just this paper looking at even her findings within her PhD because this paper came from her PhD and the overall, you know, context of her PhD looks at the experiences of internally displaced women in North Central Nigeria, you know, displaced by the Boko Haram insurgency. And Dr. Chidima is an incredible person. I met her in 2019 when I was going to the southern island of New Zealand and we met at Christchurch Airport. I discovered that she was going to the very same conference I was going to in a place called Dunedin. And, you know, she helped me save some couple of dollars asking her mates to give me a lift from the airport in Dunedin to a place where I had launched just for three days and as a poor student <laughs> as a poor student it was a very good deal to save a couple of dollars about 30 to 50 new zealand dollars but yeah besides that she really is an incredible person i love the way she thinks i love the way she maps her arguments i love the way she uh contests her positionality into things your pan-africanism and decolonization um i hope you enjoy this conversation and thanks for choosing the visions and tones podcast have a good one dr chidima welcome to the visions and tones podcast how are you doing i'm good thank you for having me yeah i'm so excited to have you it's been a while i actually had a chat with you so if we, if we can get on your on your paper i was really taken by surprise men don't have patience what a way to capture the attention of the people can you give us a bit of a context about this this study i i believe it comes from the broader study your phd yes yes yeah um actually i started my phd um studying sexual violence in displacement settings but when i got into the field um the stories i was hearing actually changed my perspective and my direction of the research and men don't have patience is actually what um, some of my participants said. Right. And when they started talking about um, sexuality and sexual desires and sexual intercourse that happened within the context of their homes. And I also discovered that they were not so much interested in talking about sexual violence as we will want to talk about it. But... Um, what happens within their own homes. They didn't describe it as violence, but it's simply lack of patience. Yeah. So the uh, the way in which you kept people's attention, how, how tactical did you really want to be to start the opening with, you know, men don't have patience? 
Well, I, I think that's something people want to look at. Right. When you when you see a title, men don't have patience. And um, someone will want to, oh, what's, what is going on here? Mm-hmm. Is someone up against men again? You know, we're living in a generation where men seem to be um, always described as the tyrants, as the people who are bad. So it's all like, okay, who is this again? And what is she trying to say against men again? I'm, I'm sure someone will want to have a look at it. But then I'm sure that's really not what the, the research is all about. Yeah. Eventually, it's not against men, but <laughs> just something to ask you to kind of look, have a look at it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what a rich data. I was looking at. At, at your methodology and you're speaking there over 30 interviews and focus groups also can you take us back you know into the methodology just briefly the demography what is it that we were looking for in particular because i see some of your participants are christians but some identify as muslims how do you how did you go about that kind of a selection yeah because i was working in northern nigeria I knew that I can't avoid looking at Christians and Muslims, and especially because of the context of the Boko Haram insurgency. It's something that involved religion. So being able to get the perspectives of both Christians and Muslims in that study was really important. And then also looking at their educational status, Especially when you look at Boko Haram insurgency itself, it's also about education. Um, Should girls go to school? Should women go to school? Should they walk outside the home? So those were important to me. It was really important that I, I, I look at those things. And then also look at their culture and what they have done, the work they have done as well. All of those help me put whatever information they give me into perspective. I see, and you 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 tackled three about three main themes in this particular paper. Um, uh, our men do spoil. Obviously, I believe this is pigeon English. I love actually the interchange of that. Can you can you can you tell me about the pigeon English, the use of pigeon English in the translations here? Because I, I loved the fact that you kept uh, uh, even the direct quotations in its original form, where normally people would like to just you know transcribe to help the reader. You do sort of show what some of the words in pigeon English mean, but but what does it mean then to you and to your participants to sort of present a work like this, such that even the themselves when they come and they read this, they can actually hear themselves, they can hear their voices presented in a beautiful manner as it is. Yeah, I think you've actually given a little bit of the answers. <laughs> yes, but, yeah, and then another thing was that study was a Nigerian study. And there's no way you can do a Nigerian study without Pigeon English. Pigeon English is Nigerian English. Mm-hmm. And even though I want people all over the world to read read the the, the study, read the paper. I still believe that the problem is in Nigeria and the problem is going to be solved in Nigeria. And probably if we do it well, the problem will be solved by Nigerians. Mm -hmm. And reading Pidgin English in Nigeria gives a message that um, English itself might not necessarily give. So there's a bond we have as Nigerians with the Pidgin English. And that's why as much as possible, I tried to preserve that originality of to see this is our problem. 
this is us talking to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before I can swing the ball to just any different direction, I want us to enter now into the segment of your findings. Um, you, you present three main findings, our men don't spoil. Uh, the second one you speak about, uh, men don't have patience, which is really the main quote that inspired the title of the paper. And then you speak about, we want to bond plenty, which which I believe, um, you know, it's asserting reproductive rights in, in, in displacements. Can you just maybe just in a summary form, take us through those three themes, particularly on, on, on men don't spoil. How, how do you start? How do you tackle, you know, those themes? Yeah, um, well, the study itself, I think the, the paper itself, all is well just telling us is what is going on with men in displacement settings. What's what, what is their experiences? Remember, I went on this study to study women. I was looking at women's issues. But I, I realized that you can't really study women's issues, especially in Nigeria, without looking at men's issues. So the women were describing what the displacement has done to their men. They have spoiled. And they have spoiled doesn't mean that, you know, they have damaged or they are, they are rotten, but because it has changed their personality, it has changed their behavior, it has changed the, the people they used to be. So that, that, that's that contest. And then and the fact that they don't have patience is how has it impacted them you know, when it comes to living and enjoying their sexual and reproductive life as it were. And then the fact that they want to have children and that the fact that they have to, you know, they want to have children actually puts the women into the whole situation. So it's not just about men have spoiled, men have, you know, do not have patience, but then this is us, all of us are in it together. So I think uh, that was just the message I was trying to give in those three things. Yeah, I love that. What, what would you say um, is the most significant thing? Because when I looked at your paper, I was trying to think about events happening outside of the displacement camps or, or areas or whatnot. And I was trying to think, is Nigeria uh, really presenting a different picture between what is happening in the rural areas or in the urban areas towards what is happening in the camps, especially also on how unemployment tends to sort of um, affect men themselves? And yes, the study is not focusing on men, but I'm just curious, even in, in the way you've sort of um, given a gaze into the Nigerian community or just in the world itself, would you say there's a greater difference in terms of what is happening and what would the difference be as to what is happening within the displacement camps and what is happening just on the outside of the displacement camps? Is the lives and experiences for women really different and to what extent are they different? Yeah, well, in the in the larger study, I did mention some of those conclusions. I don't know if you've had time to read the abstracts of my study, but I did um, make this uh, finding that the life of the internally displaced woman or internally displaced man in Nigeria is no not really different. And I, I'm 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 going to explain this so I don't get misunderstood. It's not. They are suffering in the real sense of it. It's not different from the suffering of the poorest of the population. 
When you take away the fact that, well, they've killed their family members, you take away the fact that um, some of them have lost their children and they have lost their homes. But then you think of the fact that there are several homeless people as well who, who live in Nigeria. And there are several people in urban areas who live in urban slums. And they also have those experiences. So, I, and that's why I... I made a conclusion that addressing the problem of internally displaced women in Nigeria cannot be separated from addressing the problem of the poorest of Nigerian citizens. I mean, that is amazing. And 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 when you speak about addressing the, the experience of the poor people, I'm thinking in your opening, I like the fact that you actually take us towards the definition of um, basically how the World Health Organization, you know, defines the sexual and reproductive health rights. And and you specify that the emphasis is more on the physical and the mental and the social well-being. I don't know if you picked that up or maybe I, I, I'm, I may have not read the picture very well because I felt like where's the uh, financial aspect? Is the financial aspect somehow embedded within the social experiences? And I'm trying to now tie it with the fact that now you just closed um, uh, on the ideas of poverty, you know, dealing with the, the ideas and the experiences of the most poorest of them all or whatever in Nigeria. Um, didn't the definition of sexual and reproductive health rights sort of uh, maybe make you re- think much more, you know, even within the lines of poverty? Yeah, um, sexual and reproductive health rights, to be honest with you, they are still human rights. And when poverty is an underlying factor, every other human right is almost taken away. Mm-hmm. So if you tell me I have rights to you know, healthy sexual relationship, right to choose what I want to do, and rights to safe delivery, rights to family planning, and, and then I am poor. When I'm poor, you've taken away my rights to education. And being edu- not being educated um, takes away, you know, helps me, not, you know, makes me, sorry, not to get the right information that I need. And even right. when I get, so if I'm not educated and you're telling me about say you want me to plan my family, just have enough children that I can look after. You've, and I'm not educated. The very fact that I'm not educated means that you've placed me in a vulnerable position. Because for whatever information you give, I have a thousand and one ignorant neighbors and relatives that counter it. So if I don't have education, I don't have, the ability to assess the information you give me and make my own decision. So if you come to me to educate me about family planning or to tell me about family planning just because you think you know it and you think I'm not educated, sorry, I have an elderly woman in my compound who I trust and I believe that she will tell me something better than whatever you're saying. What am I trying to say here? I'm just trying to say that you cannot address sexual and reproductive health rights outside every other right. And it is the same thing like you can't say you are doing sexual and reproductive health and you're not addressing poverty. And I think my study actually said you can't address sexual and reproductive health 
without addressing housing. It's who, not possible. Who would you say the message is to? Uh, is it is it the world, the ideas of the World Health Organization or the Nigerian state also understanding that they borrow some of the ideas from the World Health Organization? Because I could really feel that kind of critique coming out, even though I don't know whether on the on the on the thesis you really come out heavy with it, but I felt like it it was kind of soft, so to say, in a way within the paper. But now as you speak, I can feel that actually this is much more deeper. You know, you're actually coming against the fact that, you know, uh, you you know, health workers try to give education to Nigerians, but they're not actually thinking about whether the education they're giving to them, to what extent does it go hand in hand with their financial need, you know, uh, to what extent does it speak to their uh, poverty? So I'm trying to think whether with what you just said now, Doc, are you speaking directly towards any health worker or this is a message towards the World Health Organization or just the Nigerian state? Who exactly are we coming at? Well, um, the thing is, uh, when you go to the internally displaced persons camps or, or those environments, there are a lot of people who come to help, you know, or maybe my studies say a lot of people who pretend to help. So a lot of people actually either help or pretend to help or appear to help or whatever form they are. So, and it's not just um, the Nigerian state, it's not just the World Health Organization and all the aid organizations, whatever name they're called, I don't, and individuals as well. So when there is displacement, a whole lot of people come around either helping or pretending to help. So it's my message to everyone who wants to help. I'm not talking about those who are pretending to help because I don't think what I actually said is completely new. And I don't think um, a lot of people or most of the people who work in displacement persons um, settings are unaware of what I'm saying. So they knew. So, but I'm talking about those who may not know and really want to help. Please, if you really want to address sexual and reproductive health problems in an internally displaced person's camp, please look at the housing. Right. Um, it is very clear in terms of poverty, where you, you stand. It is very clear in terms of education, where you stand. Um, I want us now to speak about the role of other institutions, particularly uh, religion and maybe uh, cultural beliefs uh, in your study, how they actually come at play. Uh, you said within at some point, perhaps this could be even a matter of clarity, or, or I may have missed something, because within the 52 participants, there's a, there's a point where you say they, within the 52 participants, there were Christians, or you're focusing on a Christian uh, location, highly, you know, Christian location. Uh, but at the same time, when you now break down to the fact that the paper focused on the 18 women who were, male, who were living with their partners, you say probably about five of them identified as Muslim. And I'm trying to think now, what would you say is the role of religion within the beliefs and, uh, uh, and also how it, does it intersect with the cultural beliefs of these women when it comes to, you know, sexual and reproduction and whether does religion even tackle issues of rights in that context? Or there's still that silence. Where are we going as a country in Nigeria? And where are we going as a world in terms of our activism, trying to even push back some of the religious fundamentalism that may not be may not tackle issues of you know sexual and reproductive rights in a broader context? 
Yeah, I think it also depends on how we look at this um, religious restrictions. I actually want to pick up on what you said about silence. My major study, the big, the largest study talked about silence, especially when it comes to an African woman or, or, or a Nigerian woman. You know, when a Nigerian woman is silent, contrary to what um, the people who look at us from afar, you know, think. A silent African woman is not a powerless African woman. Okay. Silence, when it comes to Africa, is tactical. It is intelligence. It is wisdom. And it is, it is a tool that is actually power for the African. So I just, I just don't want you to, I don't, I don't want to miss that point. But then, what does religion do? How does religion... Sorry, maybe before you go there, unless if I'm just jumping the gun here, I, <laughs> I want to capture you very well because, yes, you've made a bold statement. Silence uh, does not mean powerless. It's technical. It's tactical. I- I'm just wondering, in what way, Doc, is it technical? Well, um, remember, I-, I did say, or maybe I haven't said that in this um, in this discussion. See, what the woman in the internally displaced persons camp is dealing with it's not just the husband it's not just it's not just the relationship there are a lot of things working against that woman she's dealing with structural problems she's dealing with poverty as i say and she's dealing with the culture and she's dealing with the fact that she wants a better life for her children so, and she has to juggle all of these things together to, to come up with something that, that works for her. So sometimes silence works more than speaking up. And sometimes, you know, they also speak. So like I said, being silent or keeping quiet about certain things is not because she's powerless in that context it is because she is using it tactically for a benefit. It is not just because she's intimidated. So I think that's... Benefit, her benefit or the benefit of the family. And the reason I'm asking this question is because going forward, we are going to speak about even... um, um, the sexualization of children, because that's that's one beautiful theme that you bring out in your paper. And I'm, uh, I'm wondering when when you say she's using, you know, uh, as a, as a tactical, um, approach for who is she using it for herself or it's for the entire family or the children. Cause I'm thinking the sexualization actually theme that you, you, you raise tend to show to us that kids become sort of, uh, uh, troubled by the sexual experiences at home, the fact that they get to, you know, hear or see mom and dad, uh, having sex in their presence. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so remember that a lot of things are involved here. Beyond sexualization, the children are hungry. Beyond sexualization, the children are vulnerable in many sense. They are living in an environment where they are are not safe most of the times. So this woman is choosing between you know, maybe moving away from that husband's house and going hungry. And she's also thinking of her community. Like I said, 
the woman is not just a, it's not just about herself and trying to make her live just for herself is trying to almost cut her away from who she is and what she believes life should be and remember i used to tell people that for people who live in economies where when you move out of your husband's house the government provides for you you can have subsidies you can have you know all of those things it's easier for a woman to wake up and wake up one morning and say look I'm moving out of here but an african woman moving out of her husband's house takes the risk of not being able to raise her children herself and remember those children are her old age security so taking the children away from an african woman is almost like tearing her away from her old age security and that takes me back to the poverty issues if you really want to protect an african woman address poverty True. The role of religion. Sorry, you were going there. Yeah. So I was. Yeah, I was talking about the role of religion. Um, both Abrahamic religions, so both Christianity and um, Islam, actually tells how you should be as a woman, especially in relation to your husband, and even in relation to, uh, to sexuality. who should you have sex with and how should you not not how but at what point should you start having sex so you can't take away religion as a shaping factor to how these women respond to whatever is going on with them so it has an impact but ask me is it a, the good impact or the wrong one i don't it's not for me to say the most important thing is what works for these people do they believe in what they and, and how does their how important is their religion to them so if their religion is important to them it's not up to me to say oh this your religion restricts you it's working for them they like it but i'm sure you do have your views doc because at some point and and i'd love to tease that out i know that i'm being unfair now i'd love to tease it <laughs> out because at some point you actually uh put it that some of the women would actually be afraid of the fact that if they don't sleep with their husband their men can actually maybe probably find somebody else out there to sleep with and i'm thinking about how those kind of religious fundamentalism and probably even the way they're being translated still puts women on the disadvantaged position and women has to continuously follow them or else for a man is a different story if if you can if you can give me now from your gaze be subjective about it without and 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 also the interpretation won't be that you are silencing the experiences of the women themselves and how they viewed their religion themselves well the The, the women 
So I'm not going to say what they didn't say. Remember, we're talking about my research now, not yeah. me and, and, and what I believe. <laughs> now, the women... The women I don't want to tease you a little bit. Yeah, so, you know, we're going to focus on these women because at the end of the day, it's their experiences, they own it, and it's not for me to interpret um, their religion and, and how, whether it's working or not working. Mm-hmm. If it's working for them, that's good. So what, what was I going to say? The women did not have any problem with their religion. But then they, they definitely have a problem with their husbands leaving them. They want to keep their husbands at, you know, at, at, at all costs, not because they, they remember, and I did mention it again, that takes me back to, because I, I don't want to move away from what the study is all about. Yeah, yeah. It's always easy for us to say, oh no, if not for this religion, these women would have been better. But there are other factors. Remember that these people just came out from displacement. Um, Boko Haram had attacked them. Their men have been killed. And they do not have as many men, you know, as before. So they look at their men as endangered species that need to be protected and even if they want to, okay, this man should go, remember the men are few and they do have their own needs that needs to be met. So is it just religion? Probably religion is, definitely religion is part of it. But what about the other things? So if I look at the fact that these women are not moving away or they are not acting because the men will marry another wife. And then you, they also need husbands. They want to have men as well. So I can't really say it's just a religion. Right, right. And at some point you speak about how the women, um, oh, I wish I could find the, the actual language that they use here because I loved it. Um, We want we want to bond plenty. Yeah, yeah. Can can you take us through? We want to bond plenty because when I was looking at this, for me, also part of the things that was coming in, we spoke about education. We spoke about role of religion. We touched poverty. One of the things that also came up for me in this theme was the idea of psychological services, mental health in itself. To say, to what extent do they even, you know, have a moment to think and to address their traumatic experiences such that they feel like giving more planning kids? Because in some some cases, um, your participants actually put it clear that they want to have kids to recover for some of their community members or family members that they have lost, so it's sort of as a replacement. And I'm thinking to what to what extent does even that kind of a replacement really uh, help them focus, help them heal? Because you look at the works of trauma and whatnot, whatever you lose now, even what you might get later on might not compensate for what you have lost before. I felt like there's also that aspect of psychological experience that I felt like uh, Perhaps it could have been teased out. Do you, do you discuss that more in your in your thesis, or it was not the main focus at all? Yeah, because I was doing a social research. Um, there are several ways you could look at it, um, and I I wasn't going to enter into the psychological effect or of why or 
of you know of the trauma on them and how that trauma affects their decision making that that will be going out of my field because I was doing in social research but the fact that they've lost their children they've lost their family members they've lost their husbands and or and then they just want to have a lot of children to be able to replace those who have died now when you think of the fact that many of them came from communities where they farm that's their major occupation and the number of people you have is actually that's what people used to measure you and people in the nigerian society is one of our most important resources if you don't have people you don't have anything so like i said the government doesn't give us as much subsidies and other things what we depend on as our resource our major resource is our people so for a community to survive either financially socially culturally they need their people and i don't think um as a person i want to advocate for the individualistic you know way of living because as a nigerian i know the difference of our communal living you know with the between our communal living and the other kinds of living i see around where we are we can't trade our people for anywhere now i am not justifying the women's desire to give back to many children to the detriment of their own health but i also want us to think about it before we judge them and say oh they are not taking family planning have we taken time to find out why mm-hmm. and if i address the problem of women having security in their old age making plans for them i would they wouldn't go overboard to give back to to give back to several children just because they want to replace people i'm sure they won't do that mm-hmm. because even though we want people is not only one woman that will give back to all mm-hmm. but how do we help them true true can you can you take us through now towards men are not patient and the experiences of young children you're speaking about the sexualization of children which i felt like that was another segment or theme in your paper that really touched me um there's too many things that young people experience tra- child trafficking um child abuse sexual abuse put into pushed into prostitution and what not and here they are in families where the parents have been badly affected by boko haram and at the same time they have to now you know experience a certain form of living or growing up you know breaking the kind of respect i don't know if i should call it respect but i feel like even sex deserve that kind of respect overall i think i think that's basically what you're trying to take us through in 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 your paper the fact that 
housing for better and a safe and enjoyable pleasure is more important. But yes, young people now growing up in a different kind of setting. Can you take us through through that? Yeah, I think it's, first of all, it is sad. And it also brings my attention to the fact that the average young person growing up in an a displacement camp is vulnerable, is abused on every side. So just focusing on sexual abuse and child trafficking is scratching the surface and overlooking the real issue. So the child trafficking, the sexual abuse, and many other things that happen outside is actually small compared to what happens within their own homes, sometimes inadvertently. In fact, there are some aspects of that study I couldn't actually publish. Even when parents are actually giving out their children for sexual gains, um, for money, monetary gain. But then it also takes me back to the same issue. It's sad that children will have to watch the sexual activities of their parents inadvertently, not because they want to do so. But the people who are displaced, are they human beings? Do they have a right to sexual privacy? That was my message in that paper. We talk about family planning. Mm -hmm. We talk about, you know, them not having so many children. We talk about you know, treatment of sexually transmitted infections. But is that all? Do they have a right to enjoy sexual activities in their homes? Or did they cease to be human the moment they were displaced? If they are still human beings, if they are still people who have a right to sexual intimacy, then let us look at creating a space for them. So addressing displacement housing or addressing housing for displacement uh, for displaced persons is so important. That's the way we protect children. That's the way we protect women. That's one way, just one way, actually. We also protect the men. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious now, uh, when you speak about you know, the experiences of children. And and I'm thinking about even the role of mainstream media and even social media in a sense that some of the young people out there who are not even in displacement camps and whatnot, they may be exposed to this kind of activities from those kind of platforms, social media and whatnot. And I'm thinking, is, is there a way in your study that children's experiences just as a result of observing their parents is also exacerbated by the growth of mainstream media and whatnot. That's if they even have access to those kind of platforms, um, considering that you you touched base a little bit about poverty earlier on. Yeah, well, um, children who live in displacement camps or are always everywhere. You know, they go out so they can watch and one of the common features in Nigeria is you can see a whole lot of children gathered before a shop and they are watching television. 
So people, they, so to say they don't have access to media is to to be denying or to be lying. They do have access to media, but if a child, you know, has access to media and watches something that is inappropriate or age inappropriate, and maybe begins to manifest that at home. The parents have a right to say, no, my child, this is not right. At least they still have that authority. But if the child goes out and is harassed in the media and then comes back home and is harassed by the parents, where is the protection? So the parents also, so the parents are doing the same thing that the media is doing. So the parents will not have any authority to say, okay, what you're doing is not good or what you're doing is shouldn't be done now or shouldn't be done this way, however we look at it. So it's a double tragedy, if I, if I want to say. So it's, it enlarges the problem to a very, you know, to a large extent. Sorry for using that technology. Yeah. It's okay. Um, where, where do you see us going, Dr. Chidima? You've written a beautiful um, paper, a beautiful thesis, but where's the way forward in terms of what can the ordinary Nigerian do to be of help and what can the ordinary human being do to be of help, not only towards the context of Nigeria, but also to other parts of the world? Because you've written beautifully and I can even see and sense the passion in it, your work as, 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 as a nurse, uh, a PhD graduate, you're still continuing doing work, you know, work services as a nurse. Where's the way forward? How can we be of of good service? How can we be good humans if this anything like that? Well, I'm, I'm happy I'm, I'm a Nigerian and uh, Nigerians, we are very hospitable. And so let me talk to human beings. Let me talk to Africans, Nigerians and every any other well-meaning person out there. Very hospitable. And we don't mind having other people's children in our homes as long as we can look after them properly. And so what can the ordinary Nigerian do? Some of us can take some of those children into our homes if we can afford it. And if we can, if we are sure we're gonna treat them well, like our own children. So instead of putting them there and leaving them there and the whole world comes to look at them and make money out of them, we can say this is our own. These children belong to us. We can look after them, put them in our homes. A lot of Nigerians can afford that. But will the parents agree to do that when, when women in general, not just as narratives from your study, fear that if they cannot give birth, their husband might leave them, they want to have kids. But now will the parents agree that we're giving birth, but the kids have been taken by other people? And also the fact that the rejection of the um, uh, family planning education is also another thing. So so the more children have been taken, perhaps the more other might be born. To, to what extent can we meet somewhere? Well, taking the children doesn't mean adoption. Okay. So in Nigeria, we always have a system where children can live in our homes. We, we send them to school. 
They are not right, adopted, right. but they become members of our families. That's mm-hmm. our culture. We Those things still happen. Not using them as house helps, not using them as, um, as slaves, mm-hmm. but being real Nigerians. So some of them are happy to let their children leave with other, you no, know, stay with other people who can take care of them. And another thing, I, talking about the whole government, what can the government do? I, I, have, I said in that study that displacement is not a temporary situation. So looking at displacement as something that is temporary, oh, now within a short while people will go, is not true. They don't yeah. always go. I saw your, your, your literature points out that it can even last for about 17 years or so. Yes. So, you know, making intentional efforts to provide housing is important. Proper housing, not just um, lamp shelters and shackles where they stay. Is, is very, very important. And I think if there's anything I don't think I'm overemphasizing is that we need housing for them. When someone said people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So if we don't care or if they perceive us as people who don't care, they're not going to listen to us. But if we are actually doing something tangible to help, not pretending to help, my next paper is going to talk about that. In several ways, people pretend to help displaced persons. But if we really want to help, they will listen. We can now say, okay, now we are doing this and this and this to help you. Can you do this and this to help yourself? They are more likely to listen. I always love your way of thinking, Dr. Chidima, and the way you present your ideas and the pride in it. Um, I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm not sure whether I, I, I would say you lean more towards pan-Africanism or you lean more towards, you know, the decolonial school of thought. What, what, what would you say? Well, I'm an African. I'm a Nigerian, and proudly so, to be right. honest. Um, <laughs> yeah. Proudly so. Uh, we are not where we ought to be as Africans. We are not where we ought to be as Nigerians. But I mean, there's so much to be proud of. There's so much opportunities. And we we can learn from the mistakes of others. We've seen how others have tried to solve their problems. We've seen the trying to uh, we've seen the, the shortfalls of the way they have tried to solve their problems. And we can learn from it. So as an African, I want African solutions to African problems because sometimes we try to introduce solutions, Western solutions to African problems, and it hasn't worked. I don't believe in throwing away everything Western. I, I don't believe that. I don't believe in you know, throwing away everything we've learned from our colonial masters. I've, I don't think that's wise. But I believe in learning from the mistakes of our colonial masters and then using the rich resources in Africa to solve African problems. Mm. 
So we don't just learn from their mistakes. We also learn from their development. I mean, there's so much to learn from them. And that's my own stand when it just, comes to this Pan-African discussion. <laughs> <laughs> True. Just let me cheat your time, Dr. Chirima, there with two questions. One, I'm just wondering if you can uh, touch base a bit of the limitations in your study and then uh, maybe touch base the issue of uh, confidentiality on uh, particularly the use of focus groups because I know that focus groups are tend to be also be slightly criticized for the fact that there's no sort of um, pri- privacy. There's no sort of privacy in them and therefore they might also jeopardize the truthfulness of participants sometimes because some people would be embarrassed to say certain things that are happening within their households or within their spaces. If you can just touch base on those two. Well, um, what I did um, in that study, people actually had opportunities to participate in both um, focus groups and individual interviews. So so for some people, certain things they didn't want to talk about in groups, they had the opportunity to talk about it as, you know, as an individual. So that helped when it came to that issue of privacy. But then again, talking about privacy, talking about um, confidentiality, it also depends on how we define it and who is defining it. Confidentiality for an African may not necessarily be confidentiality for people in the West or how what an African sees as confidential may not be the same. So, I mean, let me give you a, a typical example. Well, during my, in my study, I was saying, okay, I'm, I'm not going to talk about your name. I won't publish your name. I won't let people identify you in any way. But some women will say, put my photo, put my image. Let it be said that I said. So I know that. I know that. I know that. So so it's like they want that image. They want themselves to be in that, to be able to prove that what they're saying is true. And just for a record, uh, and, you, you remain you remain committed to the ethical principles of the universities and whatnot, um, yes. because there's always that kind of force from them also. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, as part of my lessons learned and my the postscript of my study, I I raised those issues. So if we are saying confidentiality has to be this, 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 this. I think ethical or ethics, sorry, should be contextual. What is ethical in America may not necessarily be ethical in Nigeria. So when we have those broad ethical restrictions or ethical values or, you know, or ethical considerations, we need to be able to give a bit of room so that wherever the study is being conducted, the ethics of that community is introduced. The Maybe that's why I left my pigeon English anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you need to pick up the pigeon English. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to thank you so much for your time, Doc. Um, thank you. And too. for your insights. And I'm looking forward to your next paper as you're speaking about uh, people who um, uh, try to help. What, what did you say? Try to help? What did you say? 
they, they pretend to help. Pretend to help. Right. I'm looking forward to read more what people will pretend to help. And thank you so much for contributing to the works that documents the experiences of women and children in, you know, uh, very absurd and disadvantageous places such as displacement camps, you know, um, and documenting more work even uh, on the Boko Haram insurgency. Thank you so much for your time, Doc. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tony. Thanks for having me. Yes. So to you, the, latest, the listeners of the Visions and Tones, that was Dr. Chidima and... Um, it's been a very great uh, conversation that I had with her and I will put on the bio even a place where you can find the paper that we're actually discussing today and I'll also try to put part of her context in case you want to be in contact with Dr. Chidima. I have never asked her this but I, I hope she won't have a problem with it. So thank you so much for choosing the Visions and Towns podcast and I'll see you next time. Have a good one. <laughs>